0: Welcome
1: to Setsing. Hello, Vishrant. Can you please talk about the topic Advaita Vedanta?
0: Advaita Vedanta really means the teaching of one, non duality. Vedanta is like teaching and Advaita is non-duality, and so it's a teaching that uh, we are one, but that can't be gained through understanding or conceiving uh, the idea of oneness. It can only really be known when awareness becomes aware of itself, when that that you are becomes aware of itself. And then there is one. There is no more than one. There is just one. We are one. So Advaita Vedanta, methodology of teaching, has been around for a long, long time. Ankara to Ramana Maharshi, to Papaji, to Gangaji, to Isaac Shapiro, to Vatman. For quite a lot of years, I think 10 years altogether, I used and taught Advaita Vedanta as a methodology to enlightenment. It is a beautiful, beautiful teaching. The teaching of one. And the methodology of self inquiry is very effective. There is only one downside to it. And that is if the mind is not ready, has not been prepared for what is found, for what is discovered as self, it's unlikely there will be any ongoing enlightenment. If the mind keeps contracting every time, it doesn't agree with something. If it keeps going into resistance to life every time it gets upset, Awareness is likely to pull away from itself, even if it's on itself and back to the mind. And so Advaita Vedanta, from my understanding, is really for those at the end of the path. Those who have already done the meditations, the asanas, the seeing through the mind, the witnessing of the mind. Those who are ready. And the other teacher that I know said this was Ramana Maharshi. He stated that Advaita Vedanta or self inquiry, the methodology of Advaita Vedanta was really for those at the end of the path. Because unless the mind is even can handle a hit without just being disturbed, It's likely in the early days of awareness being aware of itself that awareness will come back to the mind and what is found the Buddha it's not lost it's just that awareness turns away from it again. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding around Advaita Vedanta. I used Advaita Vedanta methodologies to support awakening in 1988, 1998 and 1999 and they are effective. They work. You can keep asking the question who's aware of whatever arises in your mind and turn awareness back to itself continually or as often as you need to if you want. But if the mind cannot handle the world if it constantly contracts because it doesn't agree with what's going on, because the belief systems that have expectations based on them are not met, then the likelihood is that awareness will go back to the mind, to the I. And so in knowing this, I started teaching a way of undoing the mind a way of seeing through the mind, developing that silent witness that all meditators develop so the mind can be seen through and the obstacles towards enlightenment can be removed. In itself, Advaita Vedanta is or has been really a sadhus uh, system of a pathway to enlightenment, which is a yāni path. It's a path of discipline. Every thought that arises can be challenged with the question, who's aware, following it back to the source. In this way, you can discover that you, not as an I, but you are that. And to live as that which is actually a presence produced by awareness being aware of itself, the mind really needs to be quiet. It is true that beingness really has nothing to do with the mind. The mind appears in beingness. But for that that's aware to stay on itself, The mind needs to be quiet. It needs to settle down. And then at some point, awareness locks onto itself like two powerful magnets locks onto itself and cannot be removed. I once heard Ramana talk about the potential of someone who had woken up, losing that awakening. And he put it in these terms he said that what happens to the ego is it's like an elephant and the elephant disappears in in enlightenment. But there is still a tail, just a tail, just a small tail. Now, if that tail is fed, it grows back into the elephant. In other words, if the ego is supported after enlightenment, it grows back and awareness goes back to it. I would agree with ramana on that point the mind must be in service of truth not in service of itself in service of that that you are instead of in service to the false one that thinks it's a someone and that's up to you and so I don't teach pure Advaita Vedanta because I don't meet many people, if any, who are actually ready for it. Though I do teach self-inquiry as a way to glimpse self, as a way to have sartorias, as a way to get motivated with the thirst for truth. And in that motivation, then a person becomes ready to do whatever they need to do to remove all obstacles that are in the way of enlightenment. You are that. You cannot be anything other than that. You have always been that. You are a Buddha. The Buddha is a presence. When awareness is aware of itself. Are there any questions? any statements, any challenges to this teaching
1: today? The first question is as follows. Is self-inquiry the fastest way to enlightenment? It's the
0: fastest, it's one of the fastest ways to discover your true self, whether that stays or not, whether that, Awareness stays on itself or not is another story. Self-inquiry, two methodologies that I used, the first one in the 80s being, uh, and, and the early 90s being the Zen methodology of self-inquiry, asking the question, who am I, and answering it. So you ask yourself the question or someone else asks you the question and you answer it. Every answer that is given is then discounted because what we are, who we are cannot be described. So every answer is discounted. The second methodology, which is the Advaita Vedanta methodology is you ask who's aware or what's aware and you don't answer it. It's an attempt to turn awareness back to itself. And that is quite effective but it needs to be done pretty much continuously. Ramana Maharshi was once asked, when should I stop self inquiring? And his answer was beautiful, when there is nobody left to inquire.
1: I've heard some teachers advise to not pay attention to the mind as we are not the mind. What role does the mind play in the quest to realize truth?
0: It either supports what is found or it does not. The mind needs to be dedicated to truth. It needs to put itself in the hands of truth, surrender unconditionally to truth. If it doesn't, it will attract attention back to itself because it will be self-serving. Someone who's awake serves truth, serves that, that we are, serves God, whatever you want to call it. They do not serve themselves any longer. And so it's up to the individual. If you're interested in living as truth, the mind needs to serve
1: truth. How do you develop a mind that is in service to truth instead of ego?
0: (laughs) It's the same as you develop anything through discipline. You give yourself no choice. Once I recognized the deal and the deal was pretty simple, everything for truth or everything for God and nothing for you. It became easy because I realized there was only one deal. And I was, and it's actually a good deal. Everything for truth and nothing for you. But at some point in knowing yourself as truth, the eye is totally irrelevant. It's not even listened to anymore. And it goes silent. Those who are awake serve truth. Those who are not awake serve the ego.
1: The next question is as follows. I find Advaita teachers very frustrating as the answer to every question seems to be who wants to know? Is it because I'm not ready for that teaching yet?
0: The answer who wants to know is a great way of answering any question uh, when you don't know the answer to it so you you reply with a question who wants to know this is a <laughs> a magical way of seeming really intelligent and really know knowledgeable but really it quite often comes out of ignorance because the teacher doesn't know who are you is something you need to find for yourself the teacher is there to direct you to that and usually What the problem is, is obstacles, things that you've created in your mind that are in the way. And unless those things are addressed, well, it doesn't work for you because you get caught in the mind, you get caught in the drama, you get caught in the stories. So the teacher's job is not only to point to the truth, not only to try to motivate you to be thirsty enough to go for it, but also to help you overcome these obstacles that are in the way and so the teacher is like a guide that is in a jungle and you're lost and you are lost if you're ego based and the guide knows the way out and he knows all the stumbling blocks he knows where the rivers are the creeks are he knows where the, the swamp is he knows where the quicksand is he knows all the different traps you can get into and he guides you out. Well, the teacher is supposed to do that too. <laughs> supposed to get, help you get out because the teacher's found home. Now, if someone's found home, they should know how to get home and they should know how to help other people get home. And that includes observing, recognizing, the obstacles and removing those obstacles that are in the way of higher consciousness and knowing yourself as truth. Sorry, it's not enough to just tell people you are that. That That doesn't help. It's not enough. There needs to be the direct experience of that which can happen in the presence of someone who's awake or through self-inquiry and then there needs to be help in preparing the mind for what has been found. So that mind will support
1: what has been found. The next question is in, has been asked by Frank. He writes, are feelings part of the mind? Are all sensory experiences inner and outer part of the mind?
0: Well, let's put it this way, Frank. Let's remove your mind and see
1: what you feel. The next question is as follows. Is it obvious when there is no longer a self left to do inquiry.
0: It's not obvious because it's an absence. In the beginning, you don't even notice the absence because you're not there. After a while, you get to see, yeah, there's nobody here. There's an absence. The absence remains. And after a while, the absence is forgotten. Because it just becomes ordinary that there is nobody here.
1: Next, Satcha would like to ask a question.
0: Hello, Satcha.
1: Hello, Sha. Listen, <coughs> uh, rather than formal meditation, I found that uh, when I do the self-inquiry uh, now, I mean, I'm talking about nowadays, which is really effective and which brings me deeper and deeper. So it is just for, uh, uh, because of my attention uh, in uh, uh, self-inquiry or uh, can you just bring light on this, please?
0: I'm sorry, Satshu, I'm not understanding your question. What do you want me to bring light on?
1: Uh, uh, is the self inquiry uh, I mean uh, which brings us deeper rather than formal meditation Well self
0: inquiry has the potential of turning that that's aware of the mind onto itself. Meditation alone takes you to no mind and and allows you to see through the mind because the silent witness is developed. Meditation can take you home, in sitting in no mind, awareness can turn on itself also. I find that Advaita Vedanta's methodology of self-inquiry is probably quicker. Because I was a meditator for, well, 30 odd years, and uh, I did find self as truth, but only through self-inquiry. Uh, with the Zen methodology in the eighties, and with the Advaita Vedanta methodology in the nineties.
1: Okay, this one. Thank you, this one. Okay. The next question is as follows: Can the search for heart be a distraction? as the one who wants to find heart, is the ego?
0: It can be, but no matter what happens, you have to be here. Now, if you're ego-based and you're here, the best way to live here is the way of the heart because it's beautiful. The way of living here selfishly with self-obsession is ugly and it's miserable. All the joy in the world comes from being a giver. All the misery in the world comes from being a taker. And so if you have a choice as to which way you're going to live this life while you're practicing for enlightenment, it's the way of the heart. And the beauty of the way of the heart is it demands that you be open. And in practicing openness, we get to remove a lot of the obstacles that are in the way of enlightenment. And so they work hand in hand towards higher consciousness and enlightenment so you could see it as a distraction if you want but i don't see it that way at all i see it as an aid i see it as something that definitely assists in removing the obstacles that are in the way of enlightenment the way of the heart is a beautiful way to live
1: The following question has been asked by Titan. Hello.
0: I know you're reading, but Titan must be listening. So I'm saying hello to Titan because Titan's 10, I think. Hello, Titan. And Titan's question is
1: Hello, Vishwant. It's Titan. Do we find beingness when we die because the ego goes away when we die?
0: No, Titan. We remain unconscious in an unconscious state until we are reborn again and we get another chance on this planet to live and to wake up. It is called the cycle of samsara where we are born, we live for a while and then we die and then we get reborn again and then we live for a while and we die this is samsara the way to get free, freedom from this is to wake up to our true nature to know ourselves as that to know ourselves as beingness which we already are but most people are unaware of that i hope that helps Titan.
1: the next question is as follows i hear that you took on the teachings of ramana mahashi and other Advaita Vedanta teachers. How did you choose who you took on as spiritual teachers?
0: You know, I could say that I investigated them, but I would say that I was more drawn towards them. Like there was a drawing towards Osho in the 80s and the drawing was so strong, I became a and dedicated a lot of my life to spiritual awakening. I was also drawn towards different Advaita Vedanta teachers. I was particularly drawn to Ramana Maharshi who actually died four years before I was born. But I read everything that he ever wrote or anything that was said about him because I found him to be a fascinating person. Who had woken up at a quite a young age and I studied his methodologies I studied his understandings and the feeling I got from studying them was that this man knew what he was talking about I also studied a lot of the other advaita teachers as well I studied Gangaji I studied Papaji I studied uh, Badman, Um there's so many, there's so many of them that I studied because I was interested. I was a bit of a bookworm and <laughs> I was a tape, a tape fanatic because I had this silly idea that collecting knowledge was somehow going to raise my consciousness levels. It, it took me ages to work out that collecting knowledge just makes you knowledgeable about spirituality it does not raise your consciousness levels not at all it just makes you very knowledgeable the only thing that raises your consciousness levels is practices that raise your consciousness levels like meditation like asanas yoga asanas like uh, self-inquiry like the practice of openness, like the practice of letting go. These things change your consciousness levels because you're doing something different to what you've done before. It is the only thing that works is practice. Collecting knowledge and collecting understandings. Yeah, you may understand, but so what? Your consciousness levels aren't going through the roof. You're not awake. You don't know yourself as that because you haven't practiced enough. You wanna know yourself as that, you wanna know yourself as beingness, practice the spiritual practices that the teachers teach and get free. And only you can do that. It's more convenient for us to study. It's more convenient for us to listen to tapes, to listen to gurus and collect knowledge and somehow maybe get a hit off the energy field that they have. But really the thing that's going to make the most difference is your own practices. If you're not practiced meditator, if you're not practiced at being present, if all you do is dream all day, well, you're lost. (laughs) You're lost in a dream. Get present, self-inquire, practice openness and remove all the obstacles that are in your way. Use everything and everybody as your teacher. That's up to you. Another teacher I studied was Robert Adams. I read everything that I could of his as well. He was, he was quite cool. I liked Robert Adams. <laughs> when I say liked, I loved these people because they were teaching the truth. And I was in love with truth.
1: Next, we have Emma, who'd like to ask a question.
0: <laughs> Hi, Emma. Hi, Bishan. You're, hello. Um, I just wanted to know, um, even if we're not necessarily ready for the advice to pass,
1: is the willingness to just persist and continue to persist, even if if awareness drops away and goes back to ego, just
0: oh, self inquiry is brilliant, Emma. You can do it. You can do it as often as you want, and as long as you want. But unless you're also removing the obstacles that are in the way, you're going to keep flipping back to uh, ego based reality, mm. what I call half baked enlightenment. So sometimes you find yourself as being this and sometimes you find yourself as ego-based you're flip-flopping and that's what i call half-baked enlightenment and that's just not good enough because that's like going from heaven to hell and It so is a contrast there's a huge contrast and so the, i think There needs to be a combination of things for people who are in the marketplace who aren't sitting in caves or monasteries or ashrams where Advaita Vedanta used to be done. You actually have to do something about removing the obstacles and anything that contracts you, anything that takes you into resistance is an obstacle because it actually attracts awareness back to the mind.
1: I find myself uh, using the game of zero uh, in combination with the kind of what is aware and just not answering the question because i find i find it easy to drop into that space mm. but what happens is i'm very sensitive to the outside world so it, it kind of jumps back mm.
0: yeah that's that's the problem you, you can find so, sorry, sorry,
1: where? <laughs> sorry. Like
0: you have a, that's okay it sounds like you have a dog that likes to talk
1: very talkative
0: he likes his space so you find the space your space the space of being this and then you come back to ego-based reality because the world triggers you in some way that's because you have belief systems that the world shouldn't be that way those belief systems need to be undone Mm. Or or stay in your bedroom and don't talk to anyone i don't
1: want to do that
0: well, if we look at what Ramana Maharshi did and a few of these other invited teachers from the old, they used to spend a lot of time alone. So Ramana stayed in a cave for 11 years after awakening before he came out. He didn't want to talk to people. Now, if we stay with awareness on awareness long enough, no matter what the mind has done, if we can stay long enough, there is a chance it'll just lock on and won't, won't come off because the mind becomes so irrelevant. But most of us in the marketplace don't have that opportunity to sit for days, weeks, months, years on end in, a, in our room or in a cave. We actually have to be in the marketplace. And so the triggers have to be undone. So we don't get constantly triggered in the marketplace so our mind can stay equanimous, flat.
1: Thank you, Vishrant.
0: Always good to talk to you, Emma.
1: Thank you, likewise. The following question has been written by Rebecca. I work with people experiencing trauma. As a result, I used to feel exhausted at the end of each day. I slept a lot and had vivid dreams. As I move closer to living my life in truth, I am noticing that I need less sleep and do not dream as much. What is your experience with sleep and dreaming?
0: I haven't had a dream in 21 years and I sleep about four to five hours a night. That's it. <laughs> I go into the black and I come out of the black, that's it, nothing in between. So my mind rests in in, in the black and then it comes out of the black. But then when it comes out of the black, it's also resting during the day because it doesn't talk to itself. It stays quiet. I think this is probably the reason that uh, I don't need a great deal of sleep because um, the mind's not exhausting itself through thinking.
1: The following question is from a viewer. Are boundaries obstacles? Say I have a relationship boundary to not be betrayed. Is that a resistance to things we are not ready to economise yet? Or boundaries just a decision to say no?
0: There's nothing wrong with saying no. There's nothing wrong with having, uh, being in a, a committed relationship. But if in that committed relationship, your partner decides that they wanna break the boundary and go with someone else and you contract, well, you've been defeated by yourself. You can be in a committed relationship and still be okay with abandonment. In other words, still have undone and betrayal and you can have undone those belief systems. And so even though you're in the relationship and you have had a commitment there and, and they have had a commitment and they leave or they want to leave or they do, something happens that's uh, against that commitment, if you've undone the belief systems, you'll stay equanimous anyway. You will have undone what is going to contract you. That's up to you. If you haven't undone what's going to contract you, you've got a problem, particularly if awareness starts finding itself because awareness is going to go back to the contracting mind, because you haven't dealt with your your understandings or your belief systems around betrayal. I did not have a belief system that people shouldn't betray me. They do, it's human nature. Humans betray, they lie. It's human nature to do so. They steal, they thieve. This is human nature. If you have belief systems that that shouldn't happen to you, You're actually out of touch with the reality of the world we live in, because this is actually what happens. Undo those belief systems and they won't contract you anymore. When betrayal happens or someone steals from you or someone lies to you, you won't contract anymore because you've undone the belief systems. Now you have a mind that can be in the marketplace and
1: support awakening. The next question. When do I know that I'm ready to drop the ego?
0: (laughs) You think you have a choice? Oh, wow. That's incredible. You don't have any choice. The ego drops or it doesn't drop. It drops in in enlightenment. It drops when enlightenment occurs. That's also a result of the unconditional surrender of the ego, which is actually a non-doing, but you don't have a choice. You don't get a choice. It either happens or it doesn't happen. It's uh, sometimes referred to as, awakening sometimes referred to as the ultimate accident. But part of that ultimate accident, accident is the dropping of the ego because once you know yourself as that, the ego can't possibly be you. It's seen for what it is, a fraud.
1: Do you recommend to alternate meditation and self-inquiry practices on a daily basis, or would self-inquiry alone be enough to find truth?
0: The beauty of meditation and developing that silent witness that witnesses the mind or watches the mind is you get to see all the things that are in the way. You get to see from a detached space all the things that are going to contract you, that are going to create resistance in you. And because you can see them, you can start to undo them by undoing belief systems usually. Self-inquiry alone, if you're in the marketplace, I think it's just too hard because the mind is going to contract and drag awareness back from itself every time it contracts. It's up, really, really, it's, it's up to you to prepare the mind for awakening and even if you prepare the mind for awakening there is no guarantee of awakening either that is by grace but you can prepare the mind and if you are ready for awakening your levels of consciousness are very high so the chances are you're not suffering anymore because you're not resisting life anymore you're actually in uh surrender to what is. You're in acceptance of what is.
1: And so you're not suffering. Why did you stop teaching Advaita Vedanta after ten years? And what do you teach now?
0: Too many people were having Satori's and not not staying awake. And there was clear recognition that Advaita Vedanta methodology of self inquiry alone was not suitable for people in the marketplace. It may very well be suitable for people who are willing to sit in ashrams or in monasteries or in caves where they're not interfered with by anybody, where they have solitude and sanctuary But for those in the marketplace who have families, who have a job, who have to pay the bills, I don't think Advaita Vedanta is actually by itself a correct methodology. I think there needs to be a combination of methodologies because the mind needs to be prepared to be quiet, to not react to everything that happens to it in the world. And when the mind is like that, It can stay equanimous. It can stay even. An even mind that can take fire without getting disturbed will support higher consciousness, will support truth, will support that. And so I gave up teaching Advaita Vedanta as purely about 10 years ago and took up Buddhism, which I had studied previously, because Buddhism is a way of living in the world that supports higher consciousness. It's a way of being in the world, which is the way of the heart. And this supports higher consciousness because in opening, we take down all of the obstacles. In being open, we have to remove all the obstacles. So support in love in ourselves, we have to remove all the defense systems all the things that contract us so love can be perceived. And so I teach a combination of the yani path and the bhakti path, the path of uh, devotion and love and the path of discipline. Both these paths combined are like two wings of a bird. And when you're in the marketplace, you need these two wings to fly with. So I teach a combination of Advaita Vedanta and which is discipline and meditations which is buddhism and the way of the heart which is the buddhist way to live in the world the way of
1: beauty the next question how can we question the dream of duality when we don't realize we are in a dream well, you can't. That's the thing.
0: You have, to have, you have to have a Satori. You have to have an awakening, really. To And then it's not a question. It's not a question at all. You know. Uh, after awakenings or Satori's in 19, the end of 1987, I knew I wasn't an I. I knew to my marrow that this was just uh, an onboard computer for a spacesuit and that I was being this. But I only knew it because of memory of it. I didn't know it in the moment. There wasn't the direct experience of awareness knowing itself. And so the whole attempt from then on was to get awareness back to knowing itself. And that took another 11 years after that Satori in 1987. And that was, it was hard because in the beginning I just wanted Satori, I just wanted awakening. And during that period, I started searching for heart because I realized heart was a beautiful way to live. And when my teacher, Osho Rajneesh, died in 1990, I felt like my chances of enlightenment were over. But I could live the way of the heart and I could continue to practice meditation. And I could continue to practice Zen Buddhist methodology of self-inquiry, which I did. And in the way of the heart, we have to remove all the obstacles that contract us because they stop us from perceiving love. And so even though my teacher had died, I continued the practices. And by the time uh, 1998 had come and the invite of attend- down to teachers came to Perth, West Australia, I was ready. The moment uh, Isaac Shapiro walked into the auditorium that I'd gone down to Denmark to see him, The moment he walked in, awakening occurred. Bang, I was that, I was that. And um, the thirst was enormous again. I lost it, needless to say, I went back to ego-based reality. But the very next morning, I was on the doorstep of the house he was staying at, wanting to see him because I wanted instruction. I was so keen. And the people down there didn't want me there. They said, give him some space, leave him alone, give give him some privacy. But I just stayed there and waited for him because I was so interested in what had been seen the night before. I was willing to die for it. And what he did is he did come out and he talked to me. And he gave me a book, The Review Gita, which is kind of like the Bible of Advaita Vedanta. And I studied that back to back, back to front, every which way, over and over again. And what it said most commonly, all the way through, was don't touch the mind. Find beingness as self, self inquire, find beingness, and do not touch the mind. And so I didn't, I didn't entertain the mind. Any thought that arose was challenged with who's aware. And that went on for another year. And then that that was aware, stayed aware of itself. Now for 21 years.
1: This following question is from a viewer. If enlightenment is the ultimate accident, Is it possible to wake up without doing any work at all?
0: Heck yeah, if you've done it all in previous lives. (laughs) The truth is I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. My suspicion is that people who uh, find it easy to find being this uh, have done it before. That this isn't their first time round at this game of higher consciousness. And that people who wake up when they're young have done all the work in previous lives. That's my suspicion. That's what I suspect, because I suspect that's what happened here.
1: The following question is from a viewer. Doesn't the mind just give up from constant self inquiry? Why then the psychological work, if this is so?
0: psychological work is required because if you get triggered, if someone uh, does something and you take offense and you contract, awareness will pull away from itself and and go on to the mind again. That's what usually happens. That's why very few people wake up and stay awake because they haven't prepared the mind for what is found. They go back into the marketplace. They contract all over the place because they take offense to this, that, and the other, and they find that they're living as ego again because they haven't undone the mind enough to be in the marketplace and support truth. At some point, I must say, that that's aware of itself locks onto itself and there is no way it can really be separated. But that seems to take a bit of time. It doesn't seem to happen straight away.
1: The following question is from a viewer. How do I track progress in the path, in the self-inquiry path?
0: Uh, Tracking process is a process of the ego that also needs to be surrendered. All measuring needs to be surrendered. The, The last bastion of the ego I found in my own mind was when it was operating as helper thoughts, measuring, trying to assist they were also surrendered.
1: I feel drawn towards you. When I get close to you, it feels blissful, but also terrifying. Did you have that with your teachers? And how did you respond to the mix of bliss and fear?
0: Sometimes. I remember once looking into one of my teacher's eyes and pure terror arose in me. And in reflection upon it afterwards, I realized my ego recognized its own death. Impending doom, it knew it was going and it threw up its last chance of survival, its main defense mechanism, fear. Fear is simply a defense mechanism. It protects us from the unknown. But the truth is, the mind needs to be okay with the unknown because it shuts up and there is nothing but the unknown. Being this aware of itself is
1: the unknown. I'll go
0: further than that. The mind constantly projects and thinks it knows what's going to happen next. And in so doing so, it feels it's safe. And so it doesn't throw up fear. When it really meets the unknown, when it doesn't know what's going to happen next, fear arises just to protect it. But those who are awake step into the unknown with every step. They don't live with the projection of later because the projection of later is a dream. It's not real the same as the memory of past is not real. There is only now this is real.
1: It is obvious to me that some egos are bigger than others. How do I develop a smaller ego? (laughs) Oh my gosh.
0: Uh, All egos are simply the mind being identified with something. That's all. Being identified as something. Uh, I am the body. That's the the big identification. I am the body. And it's a false identification and the cause of all suffering because we are not the body. We are that. And we have always been that. You can't get away from it, though. If you're not awake, you can't help but thinking of yourself as a somebody that has been somewhere that is going somewhere. That is just the programming that's there. That's just the programming. The only way to get around that is to wake up and know yourself as truth. And then it's really clear that all of that's fraudulent, that you you are that, you're always here, always here. So it, it, it always comes back to you. Are you going to give your totality to higher consciousness or are you just going to be partial? Because if you're partial, you get to stay as an ego. That's how it is. Those who are awake have given their lives to truth. And the deal is everything for truth and nothing for you. And it's a good deal. The same deal exists for heart. Everything for heart and nothing for you. And it's a good deal because you are not this puny little thing that wants to wake up, but can't because the ego never wakes up. It's a dream in the first place. It's a projection in the first place. It doesn't wake up that that's aware of it becomes aware of itself. And then you basically exist as a presence, not as an ego.
1: Next question has been asked by a viewer. Can you give an example of helper thoughts from the ego, please? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a helper thought is any thought that you think will assist you in becoming more conscious. Um, an example of that would be uh, Should I self inquire now? You see, If you're self-inquiring, you wouldn't be asking that question because that question demands uh, who's aware of that as well. The ego hangs out with measuring. Uh, How deep am I in now? Uh, How long have I been like this? Uh, Is my mind expanding now? Uh, Is this self-inquiry working? Uh, should Should I get someone to help me? All these little
1: thoughts. Get rid of them. Abandon them too. And be free.
0: You are that. The thoughts are in the way in a lot of ways because they attract attention to themselves. Who's aware of those thoughts? What's aware of those thoughts? That's the question. It's like using a thorn to remove a thorn. The the question removes the mind.
1: It sounds like you followed your teacher's instructions to the letter. What stops people from doing that? Lack of discipline.
0: Discipline is very simple. You give yourself no choice. If you give yourself a choice, the mind, the ego will find an easy way. It'll do it in a way that is less than, so it basically doesn't work. Discipline Dictates that you give yourself no choice. And so I simply gave myself no choice. Every thought that arose was inquired into. Who's aware? What's aware? Meditation was done every day, no choice. The practice of openness was done every time it was needed. Anything that contracted was looked into. Why did that contraction occur? What belief system was involved? Have I undone it? Can I undo it? And I would undo it. I gave myself absolutely
1: no choice. Is it possible to desensitize to the fear of the unknown?
0: It is possible to allow yourself to die And the practice of allowing yourself to die is really the practice of letting go of control. It is our need to control, which is our need to survive. When we can let go of control, we can die. We can surrender unconditionally. As long as we're trying to control our life, as long as we're trying to control our death, we're stuck as an ego. Let go. Let go.
1: Let go and be free. After strong experiences of nobody here, I find when my mind comes back, I feel like I've failed. How to continue the experience of being?
0: Let go of the idea of failure and embrace it. We learn through our failures. They're our teachers. Don't see failure as negative. See it as positive. Because it is. It's how we learn to walk. By failing. By falling down. It's how we learn. By our failures. Someone who has become a master has just failed more than anyone else. That's all. And kept going.
1: How do you purify yourself enough so that you're ready to practice inquiry?
0: You can practice inquiry whether you're pure or not pure. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. (laughs) You can self-inquire right now. Who's aware? What's aware of what you're thinking? What's aware of what you're doing? What's aware? What's here now? And find yourself as that. That is aware. That is silent. That is still. That is vast. That is nothing. That is
1: everything. When I ask that question, my experience is of nothing, um, and my mind is blank.
0: <laughs> That's why um, you. That is why you've run out of questions to ask me, isn't it, Tosh? Yes. Right. (laughs) Beautiful. What we are is beyond the mind, the mind itself is a prison. It's a matrix of ideas and thoughts that have bars that are made of fear. And to know yourself as that is to go beyond the prison and be free. My encouragement is to always endeavor to find yourself as truth through the practice of self-inquiry. Let go of everything. Be free.
1: Thank you for set saying. Good to see you brave hearts here today.